Hey guys, this is Emma from The Horse Cure, the podcast for those of us who know that horses really are the cure for all that ails you. Today I had the privilege to talk to Bayard Fox, founder of Equatours and Bitterroot Ranch in northern Wyoming. Bayard talks a little history, a lot of horses, and a lot of travel. The more he talked, the more I wanted to sign up for any number of Equatours mini rides placed all over the world. If you can dream it, Equatours likely has a vacation designed just for you. Bayard shares stories about some of his favorite rides and why we should all be seeing a little more of the world from horseback. Here goes with Mr. Bayard Fox. Okay. Bayard, I'd like to talk about Equatours. Can you tell me how Equatours started? Yes, it was uh, growth really from our dude ranch here in Wyoming because our season's very short here, really a little over four months, and we needed something to do in the rest of the year. So really began with my wife, Mel, who was raised in East Africa and had a lot of contacts there and a lot of knowledge about the country and the languages. And she thought it would be a great idea to start running horseback riding tours in Kenya, which we could do so well in the winter. And we started by taking some of our ranch guests on those fantastically exciting trips in Africa in the winter. When you have a chance to race the zebra and the (laughs) giraffe and run from the lions. (laughs) Now that sounds scary. Well, it gives you a rush. (laughs) I bet so. (laughs) Yeah. Exciting, really exciting trips with a great deal of interest. And then we hooked up with a Swiss lady who had a company in Switzerland which sold riding holidays around the world. And she had sent people to our ranch because uh, I speak several languages and had spent a lot of time in Europe and other parts of the world. And um, so I had these contacts. And um, when she heard that we were sending people to Kenya as well, she said, well, why don't you also sell on the American market some of the trips that I handle? So we began to branch out from the trips in Kenya, which we were guiding ourselves to do trips or sell and help to organize trips in other places like Europe and uh, Ireland, which we began doing back about uh, 1981. And when he increased that activity, it worked very well with our ranch where we had several hundred guests a year coming. And that helped us to market those overseas trips. I'm looking at your list on your website now, and you guys, you're pretty much everywhere. You really are. You've got spots and trips just about anywhere you could think of. Well, yeah, not everywhere, but in a lot of places, certainly over 30 countries. And we work with about 
55 different outfitters, many of them we've been working with for over 30 years, and some of them are on the second generation with. Wow. I think it's really wonderful. That would allow you to develop, you know, the trusted relationship that you'd want. So you give your clients the very best, what you expect from a trip. So yeah, I'm just looking at the big lineup of places like Mozambique and and Nambia and Ecuador and Mongolia, you know, places that the typical riding tour, I think it seems like stick to, you know, Britain and Ireland and Vermont and things that are beautiful and what you would expect. But man, you've got them everywhere. Yes, we have a lot of exotic trips and some of them sell well, but Americans are usually not very acquainted with places like Kyrgyzstan, and uh, it's hard to get them to go to some of the out-of-the-way places where, personally, I'd like to travel. How do you sell those harder-to-sell ones? Not well. <laughs> well. But it would be hard, though, because, I mean, somebody who doesn't know the world well, like me, I would feel a little bit leery, maybe about the places that aren't quite as first world, but Boy, what an experience, though. I would imagine as you're able to talk to your people, it probably gets pretty easy. You seem like a good storyteller. Like, I feel like you could talk somebody into those things because you have experienced these places. Have you been to each of the visits that you Equatours provides? I've been to most of them, but there are some places like Iceland, for instance, where we have some wonderful rides, but their season coincides with ours here in Wyoming, so it's really not practical for me sure. to go at that time. And it's been the same with Mongolia, which is a place I'd love to go. But of course, we have staff, too, who can go on these trips any time of year, really. But I've been on well over a hundred of these rides around the world, and I really enjoy going on them. So, Bayard, what is it about travel that is so important to you? Why do you want other people to experience this? Well, I think uh, so many people get stuck in a rut, and they do the same old thing, and they don't really realize how much fun it can be to do something completely different in other places while you're still practicing a, a sport that you love. For instance, getting on a good horse that you can develop a bond with and traveling through different countries, France, stopping to taste wine in different wineries and seeing ancient castles, monasteries, walled towns in a place like France, for instance, which has kept so many rights of way open for horseback. Unlike the states where big parts of the country are really effectively closed off to riding at a distance on horseback by superhighways, fences, towns, housing developments. But that's not the case in many parts of the world. How has travel affected you? Because that's been a really big part of your life, reading your biography a little bit. It says that, yeah, you've been a lot of places, and we did talk a little bit about that. But travel's been a really big part of your life. Well, absolutely. And it's opened a lot of windows 
to my imagination and experience and made me see the pleasures of doing things in other ways rather than just sticking to the same routines through life. And you've met your wife abroad, obviously. That's a fairly important part of your life, I would imagine, as well. Actually, uh, I didn't meet her abroad. Oh, okay. She came to uh, work for me here, oh. actually. That's precious. <laughs> yes. And she was uh, the best wrangler I ever had here <laughs> on the ranch. So I made a deal with her to stay. <laughs> I like it. I think that's a pretty cute story. Yeah. Well, so, Bayard, what do you enjoy about sharing the world with other people? Well, I think it opens your life and enriches your experiences, which to me is what life's all about. A lot of people just live in a little cocoon, and I don't think that's as much fun as being exposed to the many different possible experiences and cultures that the world holds. I really agree. It's amazing how easy it is to get in your rut and in your comfort space and really not look outside of that because, you know, that might stretch you a little bit or something. But there's so much out there and so many things to see and experience. And even just in the, the United States here, but goodness gracious, abroad, the history and the cultures and everything. And I know so little about it. So I'm really enjoying talking to you and hearing about how it has affected you. So, Bayard, what does an excellent guest experience look like to you? What does Equatours strive to provide? Well, there are a lot of things to consider because, first of all, you want to have have good horses. And then the guide on the trip makes a huge difference too, because uh, you need someone who's not only a good horseman, but who's alert to what's going on in the group and to safety issues so that um, the least experienced riders aren't going to be in danger on a trip. And you need to find places where the countryside is beautiful, where there's contact with an interesting culture and where the terrain is good for riding at different paces, where you're not going to be in danger from traffic, for instance. There are all kinds of considerations of that kind. You want uh, good lodging, which may not be luxurious, but at least should be comfortable. And the food on the trip makes a huge difference. The chances to come in contact with the foreign cultures and the history of the place. And of course, you need things like comfortable tack, all kinds of considerations of that kind. And we try to take this all into account. Uh, no ride can be perfect. They all have their pros and cons. And I think it's vitally important, too, that uh, people's expectations are met and that they know the pros and cons of a ride in advance and that they understand what skill levels they'll have to meet, how much endurance they have to have, and uh, what kind of 
pace you're going to have. Some of the rides, of course, demand uh, much more experience and skill level and uh, endurance than others. I would imagine when you and your wife were guiding tours, it was probably a little bit easier to manage this. But when you're choosing somebody else to guide your tours, I know how important safety is to Equitours, as well as all the other things you just mentioned. How do you choose abroad staff or even, you know, within the lower 48, how do you choose staff for Equitours um, who provide all of that? Because that's a lot that you have high expectations that you have for your tours. Yes, surely. And uh, we try to find people who are guiding the trips who are going to be friendly and outgoing and knowledgeable. And for our own Equitours staff, which stays mostly in the office, but goes on trips as well. You want them to be also outgoing and friendly and well-informed about the rides they handle. Usually uh, they will have been on those rides and know the guides that people will have when they go on a trip. Do you find that people, customers are typically fairly honest about their skill level? That would be hard, I would think, as a guide to say, oh, you told me you were advanced, but you're really not. It seems like that would be hard to deal with and be able to manage. Well, absolutely. It is a problem. And we have detailed forms to fill out. And if they've been to our own ranch, for instance, and we've had a chance to ride with them, then it's easy to rate their ability. But Sometimes we do get particularly Americans who have a much higher opinion of their (laughs) writing skills than we do. And um, also, they often tend to be ring riders, and uh, you may be able to have a good canter around the ring, but it's not at all the same as riding over an open plane. Sure. Yeah, that's a totally different Um, experience. Yeah, or a gallop on the beach where the horse really lets himself go. And um, some people that think they know how to ride well have never really been on a fast gallop. And they think, for instance, that if they've been to a dude ranch a couple of times, that they're good riders because they've been on some tired old horse <laughs> clutching onto uh, the saddle horn <laughs> saddle, and they don't even know how to post. You get some people who, like you said, a little overrated on themselves, I would think. Bayard, can you talk a little bit about your ranch? I'd love to hear more. Well, at our ranch now, um, of course, we've been operating for almost half a century now. We have a broad spectrum of horses. We've got about 200 of them. And we try very hard to get the riders on the right horse because I think this is one of the most important things, perhaps the most important things about people enjoying a riding experience. So we split the rides into groups, usually four or five different groups where people of the same skills ride together so that we don't bore the experienced riders and we don't scare the daylights out of the (laughs) beginning. One of the great things about our ranch is that we have a very 
remote location where the plains meet the mountains and we can ride in every direction so that if people spend a week here, they don't have to take the same ride twice. And also, um, for many people, the fact that we have cattle and they can participate in herding them or in team sorting them adds another dimension to the riding experience here. That would be a lot and, of fun. Yeah, and I think that uh, sharing a partnership in a task like rounding up cattle is a wonderful bonding experience with your horse. It it's really a kind is. Of, yeah, it's the kind of relationship that you can't have with a motorcycle. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of communication yeah, lot of- that goes on there. That's really true. Now, Bayer, do you guys have Arabians or quarter horses? I thought I had read Arabians. We do uh, raise and train Arabians, and we've got about a hundred of them. But we have many other kinds of horses, and some of them that I think myself are often the best are the descendants of those wild horses, three or four million of which spread out over the Great Plains, mainly after uh, they escaped from the Spaniards in that Santa Fe Rebellion of 1680. And they were mainly Arabian and Andalusian blood, which multiplied like crazy once they were free on the Great Plains because uh, they were faster than any predator, had a terrific sense of smell and eyesight. And uh, this was beautiful habitat for those wild horses. And uh, they made up a big percentage of the horses that the first cowboys used uh, in this country and the ones used for the Pony Express, for instance, and for the U.S. Cavalry and, of course, by the Plains Indians who became such fantastic horsemen and um, such effective cavalry as far as that goes after they acquired the horse uh, starting at the end of the 17th century. So are you talking about Mustangs or is this an entirely different breed type altogether? I'm talking about Mustangs. Okay. (laughs) I figured so. So now tell me about you've got Mustangs on your ranch then. Yes, absolutely. And um, a few of them actually have joined our herd from the wild horses on that two million acre Indian reservation which is adjacent to our ranch. But to be honest, those horses are mostly more recent descendants of feral horses that have escaped from ranch operations or whatever. And they're not mostly the same blood as those original wild horses. But many of the horses here in this country which don't have a pedigree are descendants of those original wild horses. So maybe this is kind of an ignorant question, but is there a breeding program for those original wild horses you're talking about? Because it sounds like there's so many excellent attributes that those horses had. Is there a program for that? Okay. um, To tell you the truth, I don't 
really think there's a good one, but the horses in that prior mountain area on the border of Wyoming and Montana are supposed to be large percentage of the DNA of those wild horses that escaped mostly in 1680. Okay. In your program, do you guys do any breeding and uh, raising of colts and stuff? Actually, we've pretty much, uh, for the last 20 or 30 years anyway, limited ourselves to raising purebred Arabians because it happens to be one of the of my wife's great passions. And, you know, to properly train more than five or six horses a year is just uh, too time-consuming a job. So not all our horses are purebred Arabians. And anyway, I don't think Arabian horses are suitable, frankly, for many American riders these days because you really have to ride them and have some clues about what you're doing. <laughs> They're not like uh, lazy old quarter horse that just plods along. They tend to be more hyper, have terrific endurance, more reactive, more affectionate. I think they have uh, more of a personality than many breeds, although um, personally I think you could and get great horses in almost any breed. But I feel that the Arabians often do a better job of moving in mountainous terrain, for instance, or over rough ground than, for instance, uh, Percheron crosses, which can make uh, great horses for a lot of things. It all depends on who the riders are and what you're doing with them. So for some of your more advanced riding groups, do you use your Arabians for those those groups as you're trail riding at your ranch? Sure. Do you use them for your cattle work as well? Oh, yes. They're wonderful for cattle work. Are they really? Are they pretty cowy? I don't know anything about Arabians, so I'm really enjoying learning what you're saying here. I think so, of course. Different people have different ideas about that, but we've had lots of Arabians who love working cattle, and uh, some of them get really aggressive about it. I had one that would love to leap forward every now and then 20 feet or so and take a bite out of the recalcitrant cow. (laughs) I've got a standard bred who is much cowier than my quarter horse. He really rules the roost when he happens to be with the herd, and my quarter horse just kind of cowers and gets pushed around, but not my standard bred. So that's kind of funny. It isn't, you'd think it was typically quarter horses, but yeah, those smart and sensitive breeds are well aware of their power and and what they bring to the table. Oh, absolutely. And uh, they loved doing something useful, just like uh, herd dogs or bird dogs. They glory in that kind of thing, and horses can be the same. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I think they like being our teammates. I really do. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, no doubt about it. Okay. Well, so back to the tours. What are your goals for Equitours in the future? Are there places that that you haven't gone that you'd like to go? Or are you, what are you thinking for the future? Well, of course, we're always trying to find new rides that we think will give our riders a new experience. But, you know, 
as I was hinting at before, you have to also find places like Iceland, for instance, that suddenly get good movies. Or I remember when The Man from Snowy River came out, everybody wanted to go to Australia. Oh, for sure, yeah. And when Out of Africa came out, we had a huge surge of <laughs> business for our African tours. And um, for Kyrgyzstan, I've got a problem because nobody ever heard of it. So we have to keep uh, what the American public wants in mind, too, uh, in selling our rides. Sure. I didn't think about that. But yeah, that would really ebb and flow depending on what the public mood is at the time, I suppose. Absolutely. And of course, um, Americans have completely false perceptions about the security in different places, and they don't realize that the rate of firearms killings in the United States is one of the highest in the world. We rate up there near El Salvador and Afghanistan, and the rate of violent crime is also very high in the United States, and uh, we don't realize that deaths from terrorism are barely a drop in the bucket compared to automobile deaths, which far surpass them. But then, uh, you know, people who come out here are sometimes uh, scared to death of grizzly bears that may kill one person a year in Wyoming when there are hundreds killed by automobiles. You know, my husband had the opportunity to travel to Morocco, and he, you know, in Morocco and Northern Africa seems like someplace that I would be really leery to go. But he said, you know, everybody was so friendly and they want tourism over there. Your safety is really paramount to a lot of them. Obviously not everybody. You always have bad eggs everywhere. But he couldn't believe how, he was very pleased to find how friendly and accommodating and really kind and considerate and loving people were because they want you there. You're good for them. You're good for their country. And, you know, they have these lovely, this lovely culture that they want to share with you because they love their culture. They love their homeland. And, and so that really, I think, is something that you don't see a lot. I agree with what you're saying that I would think that a lot of those places are probably not portrayed as their culture would portray themselves. Absolutely. But one of the things, too, about uh, riding tours is that you're in the back country most of the time. And, and people who live on farms or are living from agriculture or live in small villages, I think, tend to be more friendly and um, welcoming than people who live in big cities. And I'm, I always remember in thinking about this that uh, one time we were on a ride near the edge of the Sahara Desert in Morocco and uh, we had split into two groups so that there wouldn't be too many in any one group and um, the guide who really knew the way because we crossed the fringe of the desert was an hour or so in front of us and uh, it turned out that our guide really didn't know the area very well, but was just following their tracks in the sand, which should have been easy. But this terrific windstorm hit us. Oh, boy. And there was nothing to do for about a half an hour except turn your horses back to the wind and hunker down and wait. 
What an experience. Yeah, the storm did stop, of course, but then the desert was completely windswept. The sky was overcast, so we couldn't see the sun. There were no tracks to follow, and we had no idea where we were. So we rode and rode and rode for hours, hoping we were going in the right direction. Finally, we saw a few trees in the distance and realized there were that it was uh, an oasis. So we rode up to this place, and it was just one Berber family living there. And, of course, they almost never saw anybody, let alone any lost tourists. <laughs> but they could not have been more welcoming in here. They just eked out an existence, but they gave us bread and to drink and let our horses water there and pointed us uh, in the right direction. And it was a really heartwarming experience. What an experience. You wouldn't think that you're going on a vacation and then you're going to get in a sandstorm and then you're going to come upon a, a family. And wow, that's cool. I bet you had a lot of stories um, from that one. People were probably pretty like, yeah, man, I really experienced something here. Absolutely. Well, (laughs) some of those trips are not exactly dangerous, but more daring than others and more off the beaten path. So, Bayard, are there, if you had your way, you had no financial limitations or anything at all, where would you have a trip that you've never had one before? Well, I am fascinated by the area of the steppes of Asia, where probably riding horses got its start, and where those mounted archers of the steppes for pretty much 2,000 years were the dominant factor in that whole part of Asia. And of course, those mounted Mongol warriors conquered deep into Europe and uh, were only turned back in Egypt uh, in the 12th century. This whole area has a fascinating culture and is a wonderful place for horses. And I'd also like to see people riding more in Eastern Europe. And a lot of Americans are not that anxious to go there. It's a lot easier to sell Ireland and uh, France as far as that goes. For sure. Now, be more specific about Eastern Europe. What in your mind is, what are things that you would like to share about that area? Well, Poland, for instance, has wonderful horse traditions, and so does Hungary. And countries like uh, Romania and uh, Bulgaria, if you want to move back a hundred years into the world's development, uh, which fascinates me personally, and I think a lot of people are interested in this in lots of ways. It's like the United States used to be a century or or more ago. Okay, so what are some of your favorite places and why? And those can be either trips you took before Equatours started or now that you have your business and you've been able to share it with others. What are some of your favorite places? Well, I love uh, riding in those parts of 
Africa where the game can still migrate freely for hundreds of miles. And those places are becoming less and less. But uh, in Kenya's Maasai Mara, which borders the Serengeti, to get out there and ride with animals like uh, giraffe, a wildebeest, antelope, cape buffalo, and to have your horse interact with them, often to have a race with the wildebeest, for instance, uh, is to me a wonderful experience. And you also get to interact with the Maasai tribe who live in most ways much as they did hundreds of years ago, carrying their shields and their spears, fighting off the lions from their cattle herds, and, uh, you know, wearing their picturesque outfits. This kind of thing really appeals to me. You had mentioned earlier, I believe more toward the beginning of the interview, and you talked about, you know, racing zebras and turning back from lions and stuff. How do you have your horse keep your head when there is a lion pursuing you? I don't know how I'd keep my head, but do the horses keep their head or do they lose it pretty? You just hold on and go. (laughs) Well, actually, I've often found that horses are really more afraid of elephants than they are of lions sometimes. Oh, wow. uh, okay. They don't seem to realize the danger from a lion, and actually we've never lost anybody to a lion attack. And uh, horses can outdistance elephants fine. It is embarrassing to fall if uh, an elephant's chasing you, but um, it's a good time to keep your seat. But with the lions, uh, we found lately that an Australian stock whip will stop them. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. And we've got some terrific guides that really knew and know how to use those whips, but a lion charge is a rare thing. When we first started, it used to happen more often because we weren't uh, quite as savvy. But when you go on those trips, uh, you have to realize that there are some dangers from, particularly uh, from a horse shying suddenly, Mm -hmm. from perceiving unexpectedly a wild animal close by. That happens Um, here, you know, in your backyard too, though. A turkey flies up in your face and, you know, even the most broke horse can spook at that big old monster. Absolutely. It can happen here and uh, our horses here on the ranch can get spooked by a grizzly bear, for instance. So, yeah, those dangers can always be present and we try to warn people about it. For sure. I know safety really, like we mentioned before, is very important. You have an excellent article on your website that I'd like to talk with you about sometime. Perhaps we don't have the time here because you bring up so many good points. Your website really is just full of excellent information for general horse ownership, but as well, obviously, travel and travel abroad. But yeah, your writing safety article is so detailed and excellent experiences and stuff that you share. It's wonderful that that is so important to you guys, as it has to be. We have to realize that horses are always animals first. They're our pets and our comrades second, but they're animals first, and they're going to behave as animals do at times, no matter how broke they are. So um, I think that's really just a great guide that you've got there. Well, thank you. Uh, I've been riding for more than 80 years now, and I've seen an awful lot of things happen around the world, and a lot of the 
accidents that I've seen happen and heard about could have been quite easily avoided, probably 90% of them. It's not to say that uh, riding is ever going to be completely safe anymore than driving a car is, but it can certainly be a lot safer than people often make it. Right. What are some of your very most basic, like, do this, don't do that, as far as safety goes? Well, personally, uh, I've always felt that the worst kind of accident usually that can happen, horseback riding, is a head accident. Because you get a broken leg, and it's not fun, but it's something that usually heals pretty quickly, whereas an accident to your head can be something that lasts the rest of your life. And while it certainly won't completely stop a serious head accident always, if you wear a good hard hat, it can reduce the gravity of those accidents tremendously. And I I find, I mean, I rode for years without ever thinking of a hard hat, but I'm a great believer in him now. And another thing about it to me is when I first started riding in the 30s, people, riders, the riders I knew were totally different. People had ridden from the time they were little kids and they were in great physical shape and they knew what they were doing and they had a better idea how to fall and almost nobody was overweight and uh, that's just not the ball game we're playing in these days. I see that listed as one of your things too, not being out of shape and and when you're looking at your capabilities as a rider, can you ride for six hours a day? I ride probably five times a week and I'd like to think that I'm a fair rider, but can I be in the saddle for six hours a day? That's something I would really need to work toward. So being aware of your limitations, which we talked about a bit before, I would think would be extremely important. It's fun to think about, gosh, I'd love to go on a pack trip and spend the night under the stars. There's a lot more to it than just, you know, the the picturesque campsite. Getting there, packing in, packing out, riding all day. And, you know, that's there's a lot to it. Yes, um, definitely. I think that uh, a huge safety issue is being in good shape and um, having plenty of experience in riding under different conditions. So, Bayard, what are takeaways you would want for people to take away from our talk today as far as equitours and traveling and riding and all of the lovely things that equitours can provide? What are some big takeaways? What do you want people to know and get excited about and be aware of? Well, I'd like them to be aware of the fact that foreign travel needn't be that dangerous as long as it's done in a prudent sort of way and certainly not any more dangerous, perhaps less so than riding here in the United States. And I'd like them to understand the terrific enjoyment and excitement that can come from riding in new places and visiting a new country and learning other ways of doing things and also uh, to enjoy the pleasure that comes of bonding with a horse and uh, being able to trust that horse 
to perform well for you. Well, I think that's a beautiful sentiment to end on because, yeah, what a gift. What a gift to be able to bond with this animal that doesn't have to let you on their back, but they do, and then they're taking you everywhere. Do you have people who want to buy your horses after they've spent a week at the ranch and, or even on a, on a tour, and they're like, man, I got that bond, and I want this horse? Of course. <laughs> that's got to make you feel good. You've got excellent animals yeah. who people just love. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Happens a lot. <laughs> I could see where that would be an easy thing. You just fall in love and you had a great time and you're bringing that pony home with you. Yeah. And, uh, you know, some of our Irish outfitters, for instance, have made a great business out of <laughs> selling horses to their clients. Well, that works for everybody. That's a good thing. So, okay. Well, Bayard, I think we will end on that note for this particular podcast, at least. I really appreciate your time, Bayard. Thank you so much. Wonderful. Okay. It was Pleasure to talk with you. I appreciate your time, Bayard. I really do. All my thanks, and we'll keep in contact. Thank you. Okay, you bet. Bye-bye. Many thanks to Bayard Fox. Whether you're daydreaming or legitimately looking for a riding vacation, check out Equatours at www.equatours.com. They have an exceptional website showcasing all they have to offer. Equatours is also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Check out the show notes for links to that and more. Thank you, Equatours. Thank you for listening to the Horse Cure Podcast, the podcast for those of us who know that horses really are the cure for all that ails you. You can find more information about each episode and more podcasts at thehorsecure.com and by following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. 